Um, it's always great to, to sing the Psalms. Well, we weren't singing it, we were reading through it, but really, um, I don't know if you, I thought about this when um, singing is, um, these are songs that are written by God. We'll just let that sink in for a while. God has written 150 songs. And He has given them to us in His Word. And it's an indication that God is a joyful God. God is a God of celebration. He, he expresses Himself creatively. He's a creative God. God loves poetry. God loves lyrics. It was a great encouragement to me that, that we can sing songs that are written by God and therefore are true. And that come from the heart of God. And I, and I mention that because as we go through our study of what Christians pursue today, we will be looking at another psalm. It's, it's oh, you can't hear me? Sorry. Ah, maybe now. There we go. Love technology. As we, as we go through our study of what Christians pursue, we are going to be looking at another psalm. It's even shorter than Psalm 8. In fact, it's one of the shortest psalms uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, but the reason that I want to go through this psalm is not because of its length, but because of the subject matter that it talks about, which is very dear to my own heart. And uh, it is dear to my heart, my heart because I believe it is a reminder and creates an anticipation in us about the joys of heaven that we can experience here on earth. It is a taste of eternity. And I find great encouragement in this psalm, in my daily walk, in this subject. It is a joy to my soul. It brings me great peace. It brings me great benefit. And I'm sure it will bring you as much and even more. And that is why I believe this is worth studying and pursuing and even defending to the best of our ability. The pursuit that I'm referring to is the pursuit of brotherly unity. Now I have spoken about unity before, but I believe that just the text that is today, that we're going to see today, plus the subject matter, is, is so rich um, and so beautiful um, as can be expected from the Psalms. Now, before I tell you what the psalm is, I want to give you a bit of context about this psalm so that you have a bit of background so that when you come to the text, you understand perhaps where it's coming from. I have to warn you, there is some very vivid imagery, so that may be confronting. But uh, this psalm is one of 15 psalms from 120 to 134. Um, ten of these songs are anonymous. Four of, uh, one of them was, is attributed to Solomon and four of them are attributed to David, and we'll be looking at one of these, which have been attributed to David. Together they are known as the Songs of Ascent, or the Pilgrim Songs. And the reason is this, because um, Jews usually sang these songs when they gathered together, perhaps going from different places, going up to Jerusalem. I've never been to Israel, but those of you who have would confirm that you go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill, apparently. Is that correct? Good. <laughs> I'm not just uh, speaking of Wikipedia here. So, pilgrim songs, because people are coming from various parts of the nation, journeying to Jerusalem for one of three annual festivals. And so there's a great sense of community and togetherness and camaraderie and brotherhood as they walk on these dusty roads, journeying up to Jerusalem, singing songs about who God is, singing songs about their shared identity, singing songs about how God has acted in history in the nation of Israel, singing about the truth about who God is and what He has done. And all that sort of unites all of them in a sense of joy as they proceed to Zion, the city of God. And I hope that that information, just that, that small insight would help us to understand a bit more about these songs of ascent because all of us today have gathered from various walks and cultures and languages all of us journeying to our eternal city. As the writer of Hebrews says, we are journeying to a city whose founder and builder is God. And so hopefully we can find something in common with these people who sang these songs back in the Psalms, because we have come from various backgrounds, we are headed to our eternal city, but in the meanwhile we find ourselves 
in trial, in suffering, journeying with each other. And I hope that this psalm would give each one of us encouragement and motivation to live together as the people of God, as the people who sang these songs did so many thousands years ago. So I want you to keep this context in mind as we read our text for today, which is Psalm 133. As you turn there in your Bible, I want you to picture yourself on the road to Jerusalem, a dusty road perhaps, amidst the throng of hundreds and thousands of fellow Jews. And you are all traveling and heading to Jerusalem, and this is what you are singing. You can also follow the words on screen. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord command the blessing, life forever. Shall we just pray before we come to the text? Our gracious Father, the source of every good thing, teach us from your word about the unity that you want us to have so that we can live in great joy with one another and in obedience to you and we ask this in the name of your son Amen The first time, I don't know if, you're, if you would, I'm sure you would remember this the first time that we hear of unity in the Bible is in Genesis 11 All the people of the earth are of one accord, they have one mind one spirit to disobey God. They want to build a tower that rises to the heavens. And the text says that they did this in blatant disregard to the command of God because after the flood, God's clear command and blessing was go forth and multiply and be, fill the earth. But then humanity conspires to disobey this command and they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Why? Otherwise we will be scattered. So mankind comes together, unified, with the specific purpose and intent of disobeying God. The first instance of unity in the Bible. It's an example of unity for sure, but then we know what happened. God comes down, scatters their languages, they can't understand one another, and so they end up doing what God wanted in the first place. It is an example of unity, but it's an example of unity that is against God. And so I want us to understand at the very beginning that there is a kind of human unity that is against God. Unity is a wonderful thing, unity is a beautiful thing, but it needs to be in the correct context of obedience to God. If unity leaves God out of the picture, as the people at Babel did, then that is not a unity that is from God. That is not a kind of unity that He blesses. A day is coming again, not too long from now, when the people of the earth will again be unified and gather together against God's nation, Israel, to destroy it. And once again, God will confound their plans. Clearly, men have a desire to be united. There seems to be an innate longing and yearning, craving for company, for community, for a shared togetherness. But more often than not, that kind of earthly human unity tends to leave God out of the picture. We want to get along with one another, but we don't really want to get along with God. And we see that so much in our society today. There's a great move for diversity, there's a great move for tolerance, there's a great move for equality, and all these sort of things which are good. But when they leave God out of the picture, when you leave truth out of the picture, then it starts to go up kilter. Earthly unity doesn't seem to last very long, it doesn't seem to get very far, it seems to get unstuck. 
because it is bonded by a glue that is superficial and artificial and temporary. But here in the psalm, we see a completely different kind of unity. It has the Lord's blessing. He has commanded it. It is a picture of fruitfulness and abundance, of peace and harmony, and it is eternal. Life forevermore. But what does it mean, and how are we to understand it, and how are we to put it into practice, and how are we to uh, achieve it and realize the benefits that it claims to give? Now, we will answer these questions using the text. And we will use a simple outline that traces the structure of the psalm itself. Oh, sorry, I didn't bring that up for you. In verse 1, we will see the nature of brotherly love declared. And in verses 2 and 3, we will see the nature of brotherly love compared. So first we will examine the declaration of unity. What is the Holy Spirit telling us about unity? What is its nature? What are its components? What does it look like? And after the declaration, we will see the comparison. And there are two comparisons, and both of them are liquid in nature. One is dew, one is oil. What does that mean? What significance does that have for us? How can we put that into practice today to realize the benefits of brotherly unity? So let's begin by looking first at the declaration of brotherly unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And note the way the song starts. Behold, loosely translated, whoa, take a look at this. Check this out. And that word is there as a literary, literary device to point our, text, our attention and, uh, and draw us to something that is important. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Why is that important? Because brothers very often don't dwell together in unity. I mean, uh, David, who's written uh, the psalm, or is, the psalm is attributed to him, many scholars think that he wrote this when he became king, and so all of Israel for once in their history, up till that point, were united. You know, from the time of, ever since um, Jacob made that coat of many colors, the brothers have never been united. And now, after generations of bickerings and squabbles, there seems to be unity of purpose. So, we pursue brotherly unity because it is rare and it is important. Behold, how good and pleasant it is. Note that the unity is not just good, it's not just pleasant, it's good and pleasant. And the word good over there is the word that we read in the creation account and God saw that it was good. And so good has, a, uh, has the idea of connoting perfection, a state of being that is just as God intended it to be. You can't add anything to it, it is good. And pleasant has the, has the idea of being uh, the outcome of that, the response to that goodness. For example, um, pizza is very, very pleasant, I think. But it is not good. It's questionable if it is good. Exercise is very, very good. But as I'm sure all of you will testify, it is not very pleasant. But unity of the brethren is both good and pleasant. I want us to understand this because it, it, it seems to reflect the purpose and the pleasure of God. If you turn to John 17 for a minute please, we get a glimpse of this purpose of God and the pleasure of God in brotherly unity and we see this in Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night before he was betrayed, or on the night before he was crucified. John 17, verse 20 to 23. And Jesus is praying with great sweats of drops of blood. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, and of course he is referring to the disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And who's that? That's you and me. We have believed in Christ through their word. So Jesus is praying for us here. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. And what is Jesus asking the Father to do? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Christian unity is important because it is a reflection of the unity that exists in the Godhead. We don't just smile and get along for the sake of getting along. We get along with a deep sense of togetherness because it reflects the nature of our God. There is a solemnity to Christian unity. That they may be all one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. It's really important for us to understand the quality and the nature of this unity, because unity is a big buzzword in our culture today. People unite over all sorts of things and we are called to unite with society and friends and communities over all sorts of different things. But what does Christian uni unity unite around? What is the bond, what is the glue that holds us together? What is the reason why we are united? And I believe in Revelation we get a picture of this. What does unity look like in heaven? Steve has taken us through this a while ago. And the four and twenty elders, uh, Revelation 5, 9, if you're interested. And the four and twenty elders sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why? For you were slain, and you have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Heaven is filled with the souls of people who have been bought. Heaven is filled with people who, who are not their own masters. Heaven is filled with people who have been redeemed, who have been set free from the slave market of sin with the blood of Christ. A payment has been made because of which they are now in heaven. The basis for our unity in heaven is redemption. Heaven is for those who have been bought with a price. True unity is in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, someone may say, look, does that mean that Christians can't be friends with unbelievers? No, not at all. Christians can be friends with unbelievers. Should Christians be friends with unbelievers again? Absolutely. But I want you to look at the psalm. The psalm is not talking about friendship. The psalm is talking about fellowship. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. That, uh, can Christians have fellowship with unbelievers? Well, what does the Holy Spirit tell us? Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has the believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16 Partnership, fellowship, harmony, agreement. Those are the kind of words that describe true, brotherly, Christian unity. They indicate a deep, shared participation. That, that word for harmony is where we get our musical term symphony. It talks about a, a deep and, and, and everlasting, you know, a concord, this alignment. So it's quite obvious from scripture that the unity being spoken of is not just, friend, not just friendship and peace, but deep fellowship with the saints. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Dwelling together. Now what's, what's that about? From the context, it's in a very literal sense, it's talking about a geographic location. It's, it's where you live. So does this mean that we should just be united with people in our neighborhood? No, not at all, because as we've seen, Jesus' prayer says that we are to be united 
across geography. So what does dwelling together mean in the context of Jesus' prayer? And let me ask, answer that with another question. As a Christian, where is home for you? As a Christian, where is home for you? I came across a song called I'm But a Stranger Here by Thomas Taylor dating back to 1895 and here are a couple of verses. I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. Earth is the desert drear, heaven is my home. Danger and sorrow stand round me on every hand. Heaven is my fatherland, heaven is my home. There at my Saviour's side, heaven is my home. I shall be glorified, heaven is my home. There are the good and blessed, those I love most and best. And there I too shall rest, heaven is my home. What does it mean to dwell together in unity? Let me put it to you, it simply means living in harmony with those who live in light of eternity. To dwell together in unity is to live with those people who recognize that heaven is their home. That's not the world. That is those whom God has purchased out of the world. That's what fellowship is, isn't it? And we get caught, so caught up in doctrinal disagreements and, you know, my church versus your church and this is how we do things and this is how you do things and... We can get so distracted by these disagreements that we forget about the unity that we have in Christ. I'd be the last person to say that doctrine doesn't matter or that unity should come at the cost of truth. But what I am saying is that God is telling us that unity of the brethren is the most blessed thing. It is blessed for his blood-bought children to live in a state of fellowship that has eternity in view. How are we doing in this area? Are we united with the brethren? Are we fellowshipping with those who have eternity in view and you know, are we practicing these things in our own lives first before we can require it of someone else? So that's the nature of brotherly unity declared and so we move to the nature of brotherly unity compared we look at there's, there's two comparisons like I said and we look at both of them individually in a sec but there are some comparisons that are common for example both are liquid in nature as I mentioned before so and I hope I'm not stretching the point too far over here. There's, 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 the, there's the idea of flow. There's the idea of flowing from one point to another point. We see the flow is abundant. It, it, it comes down from Aaron's head to his beard to his, to his feet. It's a flow that goes from head to foot. It is an abundant flow. It is a flow that comes down down upon the beard, down upon the edge of his roads, down upon the mountains of Zion. And so brotherly unity is not something that originates with us, it comes down. David is trying to tell us that it, this is something that comes down to us. It's not something that we create. It's something that we should try and preserve. Brotherly unity comes down to us in abundance and it is meant to overflow from our lives into the lives of others. That's just an overview. Now let's look at the first picture. Unity is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. What a strange picture. What a strange thing to say, but is it? We see brotherly unity being compared to the oil of anointing. It's, 
if we are to understand the comparison between unity and the oil of anointing, we need to understand the picture of Aaron being ordained as the priest of Israel. Why is David comparing unity to the ordination of Aaron? What is he wanting to express through this vivid metaphor? Well, for one, the, the oil had a beautiful smell. Listen to the ingredients that were used to make the oil in Exodus 30. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, and of fragrant cinnamon, and of fragrant cane, and cassia, and of olive oil. And you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. This is not just regular olive oil. This is fragrant, beautiful smelling I mean, you can smell this a mile away, and I guess the picture that we get is Christian unity should be so fragrant that it, you can smell it a mile away. There's just something attractive and fragrant about brotherly unity. It's like a sweet smelling perfume that fills the air and creates an atmosphere of just beauty. It draws everyone closer and closer because they want to know where this amazing smell is coming from. And, and we see this back in Jesus' prayer that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Brotherly unity is a sweet smelling experience that is meant to tell the world about Christ. Unities are apologetic. Why is it a witness to Christ? Because it demonstrates something that the world desperately wants, but it just can't produce. The world cannot produce unity like Christ can. Worldly unity is superficial and temporal. Christian unity is deep and eternal. Why? Because worldly unity is being reconciled to one another. Christian unity is being reconciled to God. There's a huge difference. Massive difference. We are no longer enemies with one another because we are no longer enemies with God. We are able to forgive one another because God has forgiven us. Our unity is founded upon the bedrock of our justification. We are right with each other because we are right with God. Think about that. If we are right with each other, how can we, if we are right with God, how can we fall out with each other? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us. By this, the love of God was made visible in us. By this, the love of God was expressed in us. Uncovered, revealed in us. How? That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's so clear. Beloved, if God loves us, we ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 7-11 Christian unity is basically the overflow of the gospel in our lives. Christian unity is the overflow of the gospel in our lives. It makes public the love that God has for sinners. In our unity, the world can see the love that God has for sinners. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. We ask the question again, why is 
this unity being compared to the ordination of Aaron? And the answer is because David wants us to see the sanctity of unity. It is a sacred thing. Spurgeon comments, What a sacred thing must brotherly love be when it can be likened to an oil which must never be poured out on any man but on the Lord's high priest alone. What a sacred thing brotherly love must be. Brotherly unity is sacred in the eyes of God. It's not to be treated lightly or casually or just half-heartedly. It is to be treated in the same reverence as the oil that was poured out on Aaron's head. Think about that. Do we treat our Christian unity with the same reverence as that oil of anointing? That should, that should make us look at each other in a very different light. In a very reverent light. Because when we see unity with God's eyes, we can see that our unity is not merely for our enjoyment, it is for His glory. I mean, this puts a whole different spin on Christian friendship. It is not merely for our enjoyment. Yes, we can be friends and we can have great friendships. But in, there's a purpose to that. Christian unity is not an end in itself. It is to display the glory of God. And therefore, and therefore, it is the stewardship. It is something that comes down to us. And it's something that we need to preserve. And we are going to be called to account for this unity. It's something that is precious and sacred in God's eyes. And therefore it is something that needs to be treasured, preserved. Because we can very easily destroy it. I'm sure we know plenty about that. David is not just wanting us to sing about unity. He's wanting us to sing about the holiness of unity. It is like the oil on Aaron's head. Dripping down, flowing down onto his beard, on down to the edge of his robes. It is precious. It is sacred. It is holy. If brotherly unity is running like oil down the head of God's high priest, then there is an inevitable, unavoidable connection between unity and holiness. How do we put this into practice? Well, we can say that the practice of brotherly unity requires personal holiness. Let me read to you from 1 John 5, 6. Just listen to this. I always love this, 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 this verse. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. Don't, make the, don't miss the connection. If I walk in darkness, I don't have fellowship with God. It's pretty simple to understand. If I walk in the light, as God is in the light, then I don't just have fellowship with God, I have fellowship with you. Let's, let's, let that sink for a while. If I walk in the light as He is in the light, then I have fellowship with God for sure, but I have fellowship with you. If I want to have fellowship with you, that requires personal holiness on my part. That that's, that's really blows my mind. Our fellowship is dependent on our holiness. How often have you, have you heard of people who walked away from the church? 
And I'm not wanting to make a general statement over here. But I would love to see if someone walks away from the church and becomes more holy. I, I, I've never heard of it. It may have happened, but I'm yet to hear of it. Personal holiness or a lack thereof is very often the cause, the cause of fracture. We break fellowship because we cease to be holy. Put differently, unity does not depend on who we are on the outside. It depends on who we are on the inside. Brotherly unity is a sweet-smelling fragrance that, that witnesses to the world about the power of Christ in saving sinners and loving sinners by giving His Son to die for them, reconciling Him to them so that they can be reconciled to one another. That's the path of brotherly unity. What else? It is like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. Now, there's two mountains being referred to here, Hermon and Zion. And Mount Hermon is about 10,000 feet high and it's, it's possibly the highest peak in, in Israel. Though it's just located on the border with Lebanon and Syria, I think. Uh, and in contrast to Mount, Mount Hermon, Mount Zion is a quarter of its size, just at about just over 2,500 feet. And it's about 250 miles away. So Mount Hermon is in the north, and, um, and Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, is, is in the middle. So what's the connection? What does David want to say? Well, the taller mountain received the fresh dew, and so it was lush and green. And the Jews could see that lush green mountain and they could see how it was in such stark contrast to their own Mount Zion, which was perhaps parched and arid. So David is saying that brotherly unity is like the dew that falls in one place and makes it alive and green and beautiful, but then overflows into another place that is dull and lifeless and makes it come alive. What a beautiful picture that is. So the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion is a picture of refreshment. Not just refreshment for Hermon, but an overflow into Zion. A place that is green and thriving overflows to make another place come alive. Brotherly unity brings the spark back into Christians who have gone cold. Brotherly unity lifts the heart that is lonely. The author of Hebrews puts it like this Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Brings us back to the stewardship of unity. It's not just for us. It's meant to overflow from our lives into the lives of others who are perhaps are not doing so well. I know that when you're down you just want to be alone and fellowship is the last thing on your mind. But here the Holy Spirit is telling us that we need fellowship desperately. How we need the unity that is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. It's almost a miracle. The, the, the moist dew from Hermon is almost, you know, travels 250 miles. I mean, one commentator says, I don't know what laws of physics are being broken here, but it's poetic license. But you get the picture that he sees this life and greenery and lushness in the distance, and it just doesn't stay there, but it comes. Unity is something that just is able to travel that distance in a second. It is able to bring life from a distant place to where it's needed.
scripture actually exhorts, exhorts us to be active in this pursuit. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That, that's amazing. It's not just saying let us stimulate one another. It's saying let's think about this. Let's actually be strategic about how we can inspire one another and motivate one another and help one another along. Which means, you know, when, when you come to church, don't just, um, hi, how are you going? Yeah, how's the weather? Yep, and I'm out. It's look around. See how people are doing. See how people perhaps are hurting. See how people perhaps are lonely. Because they are. Let us consider, let us be attentive to, let us fix our minds upon encouraging others who may be really perhaps wilting under the storms and the pressures of life. And we go with this idea of flow from the higher to the lower and so we, we have this idea of perhaps those who, those who are wealthy can, can provide to those in need. Those who are more learned perhaps can provide to those who are still learning. Those who are joyful can now go and, and encourage those who are perhaps down. Those who are steadfast in their walk can exhort others who are a little more wayward to be steadfast. I mean, there's, we can be a Herman or we can be a Zion. I mean, there's different times that we can be one or the other. If you're a Herman, then go and help someone and, and let that lushness transform the life of someone else when they need it. If you're a Zion, put your hand up. I'm dry, I'm parched, I'm, I'm feeling this, I need help. It is like the dew of Herman coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. There are two blessings here. Both are commanded by God. The blessing of brotherly unity and the blessing of eternal life. And we put those two blessings together. We start to see what David is hinting at. He's trying to tell us that brotherly unity is an eternal blessing. And because it is an eternal blessing, it is fitting that it should find its final resting place in the house of God, in the city of God, amongst the people of God. The eternal blessing exists where there is unity. The blessing of unity is pronounced where eternal life abounds. And the blessing of eternal life is pronounced where unity abounds. And so there is this deep connection between unity and eternal life. We keep saying we are forever family and so if we are forever family, we better get along now. <laughs> we, we, we're not going to stop seeing each other. And praise God for that. If we want to enjoy the blessings of the Lord, we must persevere in unity. We must endeavor to preserve what God has given us this dew that He has caused to fall down on us, this oil of anointing that He has caused to, to pour out on us, we need to preserve. As we can see, the psalm presents us with the, the rich truths of brotherly unity. It is of vital importance because it reflects the purpose and the pleasure of God as well as the nature of the Trinity. It is based on the redeeming work of Christ and so comes down from God as a sweet-smelling fragrance that attracts the world and, and displays the gospel in our lives. And this is why brotherly unity is a sacred thing that we need to be a steward of and let it overflow from our lives into the lives of others. This is how we can be blessed and this is how we can be a blessing. And how can we pursue this brotherly unity by constant fellowship with the people of God?
by living in the light of eternity by personal holiness by being attentive to the needs of others and by striving to preserve this blessing that God has poured out on us as you go home today just think about unity not just in a superficial sense but as something that is holy something that requires you to do some work something that would perhaps require you to change something in your life something that would require you to step out of your comfort zone perhaps and something to praise god for because it is life everlasting shall we pray our gracious god and loving father we we are so grateful for this unity that you have given us that comes down to us like precious dew to water and to bring abundance and bring life father god we just pray that you would help us to realize the fragility of this unity and our role in being stewards of preserving it of seeing it flow out from our lives into lives around us lord that it would truly be that sweet smelling fragrance that attracts the world not to us but to christ father god we just pray that you would help us to overcome our own differences whatever they may be for the sake of your gospel not compromising truth but lord being grounded and rooted in the truth father we pray that you would help us to really nurture this unity that you have given us help us lord to persevere to be holy as you are holy so that we would be in fellowship with your saints and so lord we would be prepared for that day when we would stand together with them in glory proclaiming your name forever and ever and we ask that you would do this in our midst for the sake of your son amen we're going to sing a song um right now and so i'm going to ask uh, phil and james to come up and it's a beautiful song really that um speaks of that brotherly unity that we have and so i encourage each one of us to sing really with joy and celebration as we march to zion shall we all rise come we that love the lord and let our joy be known join in a song with sweet accord join in a song with sweet accord and the
Remain standing for our benediction from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly be all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.